Good evening and welcome to Registry Report Radio. My name is Michael McKay. My co-host this evening will be Dwayne Daughtry and our guest this evening will be Rachel Barco. First, let me tell you a little bit about how you can listen to this show, whether you're on the internet or on a phone. All you got to do is go to blogtalkradio.com, search for Registry Report Radio and click on any episode that comes up on your listings. You can also click on any link that you see in social media and listen live in Twitter or Facebook. And if you have no computer and no internet connection, you can call in on a telephone, whether it's a smartphone or a landline. The number is 563-999-3712, and you can listen to the show live while we're broadcasting. Our guest this evening is Rachel Barco. She is a graduate of Northwestern University and Harvard Law School. She was also on the Harvard Law Review. She clerked for Judge Silberman at the U.S. Court of Appeals, who, uh, who also officiated at her wedding, I believe. She also clerked for Justice Scalia at the Supreme Court of the United States. She served on a commission in Manhattan, the Conviction Integrity Policy Advisory Panel, and she was nominated by President Obama to serve as a commissioner on the U.S. Sentencing Commission. She's the author of Prisoner of Politics, Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration, Rachel Barco. How are you doing, Rachel? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks for having me. When did your book come out? Just to let our audience know. It's been out for about a month. It was just released. Okay. And just to make sure we're all using the same definitions of words, what's your definition of mass incarceration? I see it as the excessively high number of people in the United States that we have in prisons and jails and also under forms of supervision. Okay. And when you say excessively, what is an acceptable level of incarceration in your mind? In my mind, I don't have a set number that we need to set it at a certain percentage reduction. But to me, we can figure out it's excessive by thinking about whether or not we need to have as many people as we have incarcerated, given our public safety objectives. And I try to set out in the book a variety of policies that we pursue in the United States that don't achieve public safety, but end up imprisoning people without getting that kind of output positive public safety outcomes, but instead, you know, cost us a lot of money, leave a lot of human misery and racial disparities in its wake, but aren't producing any kind of safety benefit in return. So to me, you know, it's needless incarceration. It's excessive. And so if it's the kind of incarceration that's serving no beneficial purpose, all that could be reduced. And by a lot, you know, I think we could substantially cut the number of people that we have in prisons and jails and under supervision as a result of that. I can't really ballpark. I mean, it could be very large numbers, for example, of people detained pre-trial. You know, those numbers should be slashed to next to nothing, really. And then the number of people who are in prison could also be cut dramatically. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you're aware of Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point. And you've obviously been working on this topic and in many ways this book probably for your entire professional life. Why now? Do you think we're at a tipping point? I do. And part of the reason that I decided to, you know, I've been writing law review articles, as law professors do, and pursuing these ideas in that format. But what prompted me to write a book and hopefully reach a broader audience is because I've been watching the criminal justice reform movement really take hold in the last decade or so. And it's been exciting to see, but also a little frustrating because the kinds of asks 
that that movement is making of politicians and elected officials are things that I see as easily undone by the next person that comes into office or if we experience another crime wave or another drug comes on the scene that causes people to be alarmed and panic. And I haven't seen the kind of request by criminal justice reformers for big institutional changes that are the kinds of things that I see as more durable from political climate to political climate, the kinds of things that I think would give us better decision-making over a period of time, regardless of who's in office. And so I, my hope was to emphasize those kinds of changes and hope that when criminal justice reformers are thinking about the kinds of things they want to pursue, they think about institutional change. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is a little esoteric, but what do you think the legitimate goals of our judicial system are? There are people who say that we should be punishing, and there are people who say that we should be rehabilitating, and there are any number of other answers to that from other people. What do you think our legitimate goals of the judicial system are? I think the classic purposes of punishment are typically seen as, you know, four basic things. You could say you're punishing people to give them their just desserts. That's the retributive rationale for punishment. And then there are a group of things that fall into a category that would be more utilitarian goals. You're punishing people to either rehabilitate them, to incapacitate them, or to deter them. And what I try to emphasize in the book is not to pick and choose from among those four to tell anyone how they should prioritize, but to say, if your goal is the utilitarian goal of public safety, and that's what you'd like to achieve with your punishment policies, you should just know that in America right now, we are pursuing a whole host of policies that are counterproductive to that goal of public safety. And so by showing very explicitly how various things that we're doing actually end up harming public safety or take resources away from things that could be better, then it really should be putting people to a choice at that point to say, okay, so now you know this policy that you're pursuing, it's not about public safety. So if you want to keep doing it, you'd have to admit to yourself you're doing it just as a matter of retributive justice or what you know you refer to and what a lot of people refer to as just punishment for punishment's sake. The idea of giving people their just desserts, expressing that you want to show that something's harmful. And I think it's important for people to recognize that there are some things we are doing as a society that are just that, but they're not pursuing a public safety objective. And I think that's something people don't realize. I think they think they're getting all of those things together, but it's really important to recognize that they're at cross purposes a lot of the time. And so that was my hope in the book, was really to speak to people who are thinking about what we do with criminal law from a public safety lens and let them know the kinds of things we're doing that are not good for that. And then if they decide they want to keep doing it because, you know, it feels good as a matter of retributive justice, you know, I can't speak to that. I can't tell people how they should prioritize it. But my gut instinct tells me there's a lot of voters out there who think that these are things we should be doing only if they're helping public safety. And if they found out that, in fact, they were making things worse, they wouldn't want to continue pursuing them. I see. How do you feel that your views on mass incarceration and your experience in the judicial system have informed your views about the sex offender registry? I think that's a good example of a phenomenon that I talk about in the book, in the first chapter, actually, that there's a kind of common sense among people who witness criminal justice policy or think about it from the outside. I've seen a lot in comments to articles and whatnot. They'll say something along the lines of, well, you know what? Do the crime, do the time. 
you know, the person who committed the crime should just accept all consequences. And I think there's an implicit assumption in a statement like that, that we have a rational set of crime definitions and then a rational set of punishments and consequences that are linked to those. And I think sex offender, that term, and the consequences that are linked to it is a great example of how misleading that can be. Because if you were to go around the country right now in various states, you would find that the definition of sex offender includes a whole basket of things that are really vastly different in terms of how your average person would rank them by culpability. So, you know, I talk to people and I ask when I say the term sex offender, what are you thinking about? And I think most people are thinking about maybe the rape of a child, violent rapes of adults. They're thinking about the worst examples and instances of sex offenses. And they're probably not thinking about things like visiting a prostitute, urinating in public, teens sexting each other, or teens having consensual sex with each other. Those are things that aren't coming to mind for people, and yet all of those things in many states in the country are sex offenses. And then related to that, you find that the consequences for committing a sex offense, however defined, if you're in that bucket for whatever reason, are set with the worst cases in mind. So the sentences often are mandatory minimum punishments that are very harsh. There's often lifetime requirements to be put on registry collateral consequences for having the conviction about access to public housing or to benefits or to various occupational licenses. You know, the list goes on. So that do the crime, do the time idea is just so out of whack because what people might think the crime is is actually a whole bunch of disparate things and the time associated with it was all set with the worst kind of category of that case in mind. And we're setting people up to fail when they do come out of prisons precisely because we're putting so many impediments in their way. So, you know, that's where I come at it, is seeing it as an example of a larger phenomenon that we see across a range of offense types and categories. But I think that one really illustrates it well because people have so many ingrained assumptions about what that term means and what should happen to people who commit a sex offense. I often tell people that the thing that scares me most about the judicial system is the arbitrariness of it in many cases. How would you propose that we fix that aspect of our system without creating more blanket, one-size-fits-all policies and laws? Yeah, that's such a good question because I do think that in the past when we've tried to curb discretion or make treatment of people more equal, it's tended to be that that has come with severity. We ratchet things up for everyone to make things equal. And, you know, you can see that dynamic play out with people's reactions to recent cases where someone has been sentenced, something like Paul Manafort's sentence. And, you know, so many people saying, well, why didn't he get more time? seems arbitrary because if you look at the sentences, you know, poor defendants receive for drug offenses, the idea of his sentence may have seemed too lenient. And there's a tendency to want to ratchet everyone up in the name of controlling discretion. So I think there's a couple solutions that we could have for that. The first thing I think to keep in mind is that if you try to control the discretion of a single actor, you're really just putting the discretion someplace else. So there was a movement in the 1970s where it really kicked off to control the discretion of judges. That was the target. You know, it mattered if you got Judge X or you got Judge Y, what your sentence would be. And so lots of jurisdictions turned to mandatory minimum sentences or mandatory sentencing guidelines. And I think the people who pushed for that 
forgot that there are other actors in the system. And so all that did was transfer the discretion that had previously been in judges and give it to prosecutors. And then prosecutors could decide, should they charge you with the offense that triggers the mandatory minimum, or should they charge you with a different one? And we saw all that discretion just move to someplace else in the system. So I think we have to recognize there will be discretion. But I think that's a good thing to have because I think individuals are different. It's important to watch as people either change, you know, people change over time to be able to adjust sentences as people change over time. So I think it's okay to have discretion. I think the key is just to have oversight in place so, you know, no one person is responsible for making the decision about somebody's life. So place one would be thinking about how do we make sure prosecutors don't have too much discretion because right now really it's largely been transferred there and it really matters who your prosecutor is, what happens to you. And there's lots of checks that we could have in place there that I think would help to equalize things. You know, so one would be no more mandatory sentencing because that really does just give prosecutors too much power. And if you don't do it that way, if you don't have mandatory sentencing, that means judges have some freedom to check what a prosecutor has decided. You know, similarly, I think it's really important to have back-end review things like parole so that you take a second look of a somebody's sentence over time. You know, that again can serve as a check on what those initial actors decided. But even more importantly, it also allows you to account for anything that's changed over time. You know, either how we view an offense, what we've learned about, uh, say, a drug, or how a particular crime affects society, and then critically what we've learned about the person. So, you know, those are ways in which you can set institutions up to check each other because now you have multiple actors in the system with discretion and they can help correct errors that the others might make. But I think you need more than that because I also argue in the book that in other areas of our regulatory life where we're worried about safety and health, we have set up agencies and said to them, look at the evidence, look at the data, and set policies based on what the evidence and data tell us would be our best strategy. You know, it won't be perfect and the evidence isn't always complete, but we can certainly get better decisions if we do that. And I think having agencies in place that are setting policies overall. So for example, if an agency had to think about what collateral consequences should follow a conviction, based on what someone has done, you know, then they could weigh costs and benefits. They could say, geez, some of these collateral consequences just make it almost impossible for people when they're returning to society from a prison to return and live a law-abiding life because we've set them up to fail. We really need to cut back or eliminate these. And then have those agencies also face review. You know, have them like we do with other administrative agencies, have to do cost-benefit analysis, have to face judicial review to make sure they are not arbitrary and capricious. You know, so the idea is we have lots of checks in place with at different institutions checking each other and transparent decision-making by these agencies. So, you know, we, the public, could take a look and see what they're doing, why they're doing it. And I think that would be vastly better than what we have. But, you know, I don't want to pretend that we would get rid of all unequal outcomes because, you know, I don't think that's possible. And, and I think the search for that in the past has really led us down a path that's been even worse. I think it's interesting that you mentioned prosecutorial and court discretion and mandatory minimums and the way people shop for a judge or a jury that might be more sympathetic to their case. I'd be interested in your views on the Marcy's Law movement and how victims may have an influence on post-conviction policy and how a perpetrator with a compassionate victim would be treated differently than a perpetrator who has a carceral-minded victim. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting dynamic that in our society, there are certain categories of victims and crime types that yield emotional responses by our politicians and the voting public. And that does change how people are treated under the law. And one of the peculiarities, I think, of the victims' rights movement more generally is if you look at who is, in fact, a crime victim in the United States, you find that that is much more likely to be people who live in poorer communities that have the higher rates of violence within their communities. It's a lot of people of color, and yet the victims' rights move, and a lot of men, and yet the victims' rights movement has the public profile of that is, you know, much more uh, has leaned female and white. And so it, it creates an imagery of who is a crime victim in the United States that is, I think, in many ways misleading, because what we're not seeing in that movement or how we think about how to treat victims, you know, which we should prioritize victim services and helping people who have been victimized by crimes. Instead, what it ends up being is there's this kind of prototypical image that's out there, and it's all about getting this kind of vengeful justice or thinking about how to you know, satiate the desire to, to remedy that wrong. And actually, oftentimes, it's not even about what could you do to help this victim. So we have jurisdictions that offer really abysmal victim services and often completely fail to account for the fact that many of the people in their offender populations are themselves victims. That's tremendously common. And so someone who today is the victim of a crime, very well tomorrow could be somebody who's perpetrating one. And, you know, police departments know this, prosecutors know this, because they see the same people coming into their offices, but in different capacities. And yet it's not really registering with them that there's an underlying set of issues that we as a society could help with both the population that on any given day is an offender or a victim and really think about getting at some of the underlying dynamics that create that. So a fruitful victim's rights approach, I think, really does get at certainly trauma that people experience when they have been victimized by things. And we have a lot of people who are in our nation's prisons and jails who have been traumatized and victimized, you know, offering services for people, you know, thinking about the kinds of things that we offer in communities that have particularly high incidence and rates of that. So to me, that's the approach we should be thinking about versus whenever you see those named laws, you know, that are really kind of red flags that, you know, we're going to use a case as an emblem to really create a lot of political rhetoric around it. And that tends to be a red flag that it's just we're not really analyzing what works and what doesn't work to address all of the forms of trauma that exist in our society and to make it easier for people to readjust from whatever it is that they have gone through. So, you know, to me, again, that would be another example of something that's much more about rhetoric and playing to sound bites that might appear on the news and in political slogans and really not getting at underlying issues that could be dealt with much more productively. Super. I see that Elizabeth, one of our co-hosts, has popped into the studio, and she'll have some questions for you a little bit later on. But for now, I'm going to pass to Dwayne, who's a co-host with lots of questions for you. So take it away, Dwayne. Thank you very much, and thank you for being with us. You touched on judges and prosecutors, and judges at one time had the power to mitigate punishment. However, 
Many of the laws have been restricted where judges are prohibited from giving a compromise. Should judges be a part of the discussion with justice reform? Yes. I'm so glad you asked that because I have a whole chapter devoted to this idea of how important judges are. (laughs) Because I really think if we ignore them, the movement for criminal justice reform is ultimately going to falter and only get some half measures because they're so important for a variety of decisions. And, you know, we're seeing it now in places that, for example, are trying for bail reform. So you could elect right. a progressive prosecutor who completely gets the idea that pretrial detention is bad for public safety. We're so much better off having people be released. They're way less likely to commit crimes if that happens. And yet, even when prosecutors have bought into this in places like Philadelphia, for example, the judges haven't, and they're just not going along with it. So unless we have people on the bench who get this idea, I think the movement will stall. And so it's really important to have diversity of professional backgrounds on the bench. I think one of the things that has been an issue that I have seen is we depend on our federal courts to protect all the constitutional rights that we have. So protecting against excessive fines and fees, making sure that people get due process, that they don't get excessive punishment, that they're not being coerced into pleas. All those things have to be policed by federal courts as a constitutional matter. And yet, if you look at who occupies the federal bench, you know, we have just seen decades of that group being people who were prosecutors. So currently, it's about 43% of our federal judiciary used to be a prosecutor, and it's roughly 10% who had some kind of public defense background. And I recently spoke to some people at Cato who studied, if you look not just at people who were criminal prosecutors, but served on a kind of government side enforcement position, so somewhere else in government, the ratio goes from four to one government in favor of the government to seven to one. So it's really a bench that is, by institutional background, predisposed to be very deferential to government positions and things that the government is saying. So I think we need to make sure that we have a bench that reflects professional diversity, people who work with individual clients, either as public defenders or public interest lawyers, you know, provide social services to people. So they kind of see things from a variety of perspectives. And then, as you said, I think it's important once we have that kind of diverse bench in place that they have discretion to adjust as they learn things about individuals. Because I do think we've fallen prey to an idea that you could have one size fits all justice, that you could say that everyone is the same as long as they commit one offense. But, you know, that just it goes against everything I think humans would be thinking about if they thought about this. You know, in any kind of natural way, you'd want to know, well, why did you commit the crime? What circumstances led you to do it? Tell me about your background and your life. And are there, have you done things to change since then? You know, are you hoping to change? All those would be relevant questions for anyone who thought about human nature realistically. But, you know, too often we don't have a system in place in a given jurisdiction that allows judges to do that. So, you know, I think it's both. I'd say it's a two-tiered strategy of making sure the bench has the right kind of mix of people on it, you know, which can include prosecutors for sure, just not dominating. And then that they have the discretion and the freedom to adjust sentences and decisions based on the facts that they're actually seeing in front of them. And the bench is really rather political. I mean, no matter who's sitting there, it is usually the money is provided by one party or another, despite being independent. For example, in North Carolina, Superior Court and District Court judges are elected. So, of course, it's going to be a rather political 
So when there are people or justices looking at justice reform, then they create their own soundbite to stir emotion or what I would consider judicial prejudice. What's the best pitch to kind of center that back toward law? Yeah, that's a tough nut to crack, I have to say, (laughs) that judicial elections are difficult because if you look at a lot of these state judicial elections, you know, so the federal bench is appointed, so that's a little bit easier in the sense of putting pressure on the president and senators who care about criminal justice reform to have that be reflected in the federal bench. But at the state level, you're right. You know, these are elected positions and you will often see their campaign ads are some of the most regressive tough on crime ads where you'll have a particular judge who, frankly, is really being backed by a lot of well-financed business interests. They want that judge on the state high court because that judge is going to be very favorable to business. They're basically anti-consumer. But no one could win a judicial election coming out and saying, I'm always going to root for big business and against the consumer. So instead, they tend to find people for those posts that really try to champion their position as being tough on crime and paint their opponents who might be less favorable to business, more pro-consumer, look for things in those people's background that suggest that they'll go easy on people. So you'll see the ads for the pro-business types will say things like, well, my opponent let Joe Smith out on a technicality so that he could prey on children again. You know, the classic voiceover with the scary imagery of the empty swing. And, you know, I've seen ads like this all over the country. You go and you look and it turns out that the attack on the opponent, it's actually that judge correctly ruled in favor of a defendant's constitutional rights. You know, the technicality is almost always that we have liberty-protecting provisions in the Constitution that doesn't just let the government railroad people. But, you know, that turns into a terrible campaign ad. So I think it's hard to figure out how you're going to cut against that because you're right. Those are really well-financed campaigns. And, you know, much to my chagrin, Many of them have been financed, for example, by the Koch family, who are great on criminal justice reform, who have a foundation that has done some of the best work in terms of getting great criminal laws and policies changed throughout the country. And so, you know, it's heartbreaking to see that on the one hand, they're supporting all these great policies, but on the other, they'll still fund candidates, judicial candidates who run ads like that. So, you know, one hope I have is just at some point they might say, you know, in order to get our funding, you kind of have to buy into the whole package of things we believe in. I mean, I don't know if that'll occur, but I'd love to see it happen. But I think the other thing is there is an active criminal justice reform movement out there in people who care. So I do think that same momentum that is getting some prosecutors elected throughout the country could be used for judges as well, because those tend to be low information elections and often low turnout. So if you can mobilize people who really care about an issue that they should care, I think that could help to turn the tide. And I do think we are at that, to reference the earlier point, the tipping point in terms of how the electorate sees some of these criminal justice issues. There are a lot of people who really care. And I think we'll see probably a test case of this in Philadelphia as they try to unseat some of these judges who are resisting the bail reform measures. You know, I think there is an effort now to educate the public. You know, they just had a forum with some of the candidates asking them about their positions on criminal justice policy. So I think those are the first steps to try to get that shift in what we see for judicial elections. But I just have to concede on this one. It is going to be a much harder road 
than it is for prosecutors because the judicial elections, so much more is at stake than just the criminal cases and criminal docket because they do handle all of those big regulatory matters too. Right. It reminds me of the Dukakis campaign where George Bush, really somebody was released from prison because of this. So it is very political. But also another political era is sex offender registries perhaps create lesser incarceration rates. And I'm looking at your book. In order to reduce numbers, we're now seeing or witnessing violent offender registries, arson registries, animal cruelty registries. Is that a proper roadmap to reduce incarceration levels? And can registries in that manner fudge the numbers that reforms are working when they're actually being replaced with something else? Yeah, no, so for me, I think of, although I do use the term mass incarceration because it's kind of a buzzword among the public to know to kind of care about it. You know, the way I see it is it's not just forms of physically incarcerating and locking people up. It, It includes other forms of supervision and oversight by the state. So a registry is that kind of an example. And I think we want to think about all of that, probation, supervision, registries, incarceration, intense government control over what people can and cannot do. You know, I think it's all part of it. And I think we want to limit that as much as we can, consistent with public safety. You know, and I do think that's something that I think it's important for reformers to keep in the conversation because I understand we're abolitionists are coming from when they make their arguments because there are so many places in our country, prisons that are just so awful, you just kind of want to raise them to the ground and start all over again. But it is important to recognize, you know, there's there's safety issues. But what I think we get when we focus on public safety is you start to recognize having long lists of people on registries for oversight is just a terrible strategy for that. We can't keep track of all those people. You're asking overworked probation officers to keep track of hundreds of people per officer is unrealistic and makes no sense. And it furthermore ends up taking limited resources away from things that would be so much more valuable if we want to get at root causes of why things are happening in the first place. Spend the money there. These, I think, are just tools that are often used by politicians to look like they're dealing with a problem, to make it appear that they're hearing constituents' concerns with an issue and responding, but they're just not responding effectively. And so my hope would be that, you know, instead of creating registries, which we have learned from empirical studies, you know, are not helping to reduce the incidence of the underlying crime, you know, to really think about, could we be doing a better job offering treatment for people who interact with the system? Are there ways in which we could be offering better services that would help people try to minimize the number of people that would need any kind of extensive oversight? Because again, just like our number of people in prisons, you could just dramatically reduce all those numbers. So I think we go in the opposite direction when we start to try to expand it, because all the empirical evidence tells us that that's just not the right way to go. But that's the crossroads we're typically at in our country, which is, you know, there's a political, rhetorical push for something that people think sounds like it'll work. And I I think it's the burden on those of us who want reform to really explain to people, you may think this is going to make you safer, but it's just the opposite. You know, you're going to strain already strained resources and you're going to produce no better outcomes as a result. So I would hope you think about it globally that way. And decades ago, there was a mindset that separated misdemeanors from felons. And today, the mindset is blended to the label a blanket of anyone that's convicted. How do you think justice reform will play a part in changing the outlook of the criminal base record system? Yeah, so I think that's a big issue that we, you know, there was just that great study 
by Sonia Starr and J.J. Prescott in Michigan that showed expunging people's criminal records had a positive impact on their ability to successfully get jobs and therefore recidivate less. So expunging records is, is, is the thing we want to be doing as opposed to ladling on. Because again, it's that trade-off that I think the public needs to realize. There's this sense of we're going to send someone away for a really long time and then we're going to forever mark them. And I think there's an intuition behind that, that that's somehow a good strategy for public safety. And I think it's critical to emphasize First, most people that are put away, as that expression is used, come right back out into society. You know, 95% of the people that we put in prison rejoin our communities. And it's a very short-sighted and, you know, ultimately undercutting strategy to make it hard for them to do that. When they come back out, we should be doing everything we can to help them succeed because we all want that. You know, we all want to achieve better safety outcomes, assistance outcomes for folks. And so the idea of labeling people in perpetuity is terrible for that. It's going to make it harder for them to get housing, harder to get jobs, harder to participate actively in society. And it's not serving as any kind of reliable marker or indicator of risk to warn others. So you're not getting a corresponding benefit by labeling people that way. And in fact, you're actually setting them up to make it so much more difficult for them to reenter successfully. So I think we could do a much better job thinking about expunging things that are on people's records and really trying to think about why we put labels on folks and why we have certain consequences and whether they're actually good fits for what someone has done. And for too often, there was like the binge in the 80s and 90s of taking away things from people. And it was almost as if you know Congress and state legislators looked around to figure out how many more bad things could we do to somebody. And when they talked about it, I think they genuinely had a sense, or at least they stated that they did, that you know these would be deterrents, that somehow someone thinking about committing a drug crime, for example, would say, wow, not only am I going to get that mandatory 10 years, but I'll get kicked out of public housing and I'll never be able to be eligible for any kind of food stamp benefit again, and, you know, and I'll lose my driver's license. So if I live in most of the country where you need a car for a job, I won't have that. And, you know, in fact, all the deterrence literature tells us they're not thinking about that in advance. You know, they're just thinking, are they going to get caught or not? And so we end up getting no deterrence. But instead, after these people have committed their offense and they're ready to try to start over again and live law-abiding lives, we then hit them with all these things that make it so difficult to do that. And so I do think, again, that the shift just has to be emphasizing that whatever retributive benefit you think you're getting from that or deterrence benefit, it's coming at the huge cost to, to safety because you're just making it so hard for people to adjust. I could talk to you all day long. I really could. I'm a PhD student in public policy, and I'm just intrigued with, with everything that you've been talking about because it just touches on so many things I've been wanting to do and research. But oh, I, I can't. I got to let I got to let Elizabeth ask some questions, too. So, Elizabeth, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Dwayne. How are you, Ms. Barco? Oh, I'm fine, thanks. I'm just like Dwayne. I am so intrigued with everything you've said. You explain it so clearly and so concisely. It's like you take care of it all. Thank you so oh, much. Thank it's you. Such a, a breath of fresh air. Finally, somebody gets it. So I know what I'm doing with the weekend. <laughs> well, thank you. I only have really one question. How does the general population start to affect some of these changes that you talk about? Who would the general person on the street, who would we start to advocate to? 
You know, I think that a lot of people are sympathetic to these arguments once they hear them. You know, I think for some people, it's the first time that they ever heard, you know, and I kind of use my own family and friends who aren't into criminal justice reform as a daily matter of their life, like all of us, (laughs) Uh, you know, and I'll sometimes just talk to people and say, you know, because I get it. I get the instinct that would say, gee, you know, someone that's been arrested for a crime, shouldn't we lock them up just to make sure we stay safe? You know, that kind of conventional wisdom, gut instinct that someone might have. And then if you start to say, yeah, but, you know, think about who we're probably locking up. These are probably people who are very poor, living at the margins of society. And even if you just lock them up a couple days, they're going to lose their job. They're going to lose childcare. They may lose custody of their children. You know, it's going to be a life-altering experience to detain them pretrial. And in fact, when we study what happens to people that are detained pretrial, you know, holding their crime and criminal history constant, we find comparing same kinds of people, someone who's detained, someone who isn't, the person detained is the one who's going to commit more crimes later, which you can understand when you realize we've just disrupted their entire life. And I find having conversations with people where you explain it and and then they start to think, oh, right, you know, you don't hear that on the news, though. On the news, you're just going to hear someone who was released, you know, on bail, who commits a crime, did something. And then the reaction is, well, let's get rid of ever releasing anyone because there's no counterpoint that says, actually, you know, you're going to create far more crimes by detaining people than you'll prevent by using this widespread use of pretrial detention. So, so I think part of it is just getting that information out there, which isn't always easy because it's not as interesting. You know, that wouldn't be an interesting news story. I think people might click the channel as soon as that came on. You know, the empirical study about pretrial detention is not exactly going to grab people. But I do think there's a way in which People understand it's grotesque to have someone's freedom depend on how much money they have. So I do think there are powerful journalistic accounts and people talking about stories of someone who is incarcerated only because they couldn't pay bail. You know, I do think people get that. And sometimes that's a window to get the broader reforms passed. So here in New York, we just had a big overhaul of our bail system and discovery access for defense counsel to get discovery from prosecutors. And you know, I think a big reason that it happened was because there was such a powerful amount of coverage to Khalif Browder and his suicide after having served time in Rikers Island. I think that really helped people see a personal story. And then as they got into that story, learn more about the system And I think it really did help to bring about some change. And then I think the other critical thing to this movement that is really wonderful to see is the other tipping point, just to return again to the theme we started with earlier, is there are so many people who are justice involved now that they are the best advocates for what this system does to people and what needs to change. And I think as people meet more people, you know, there was such a stigma before with people being willing to talk about their justice involvement and their records. But, you know, now we have so many wonderful advocates who let it be known that they have served time and they've had involvement with the criminal justice system. And then others can realize from that, you know, this is a good person who may have made a mistake, but they're so productive to society. They're giving so much and they're telling me about this thing I didn't know about before. And so persuasively, because, you know, what better voice for those kinds of issues than the people who've personally felt them. 
And there again, I think we see a great recent example of how persuasive formerly incarcerated and justice-involved people can be. The First Step Act at the federal level would never have passed without them so many tireless advocates walking the halls of Congress and meeting with senators and representatives. And I've heard so many stories about how much those meetings mattered because it really helps to see a live person to kind of take off whatever stereotypes or just incorrect information people have to to meet somebody. And, you know, I've seen it myself personally with my students because we've had lots of events at NYU with people who've been justice involved. And you can see as the students meet people who've been through things and experience it and talk to them and hear it from their perspective. I think that does wonders. I I just think that's the best advocacy strategy there is. And then there's just the numbers because now we have so many more people. You know, it's the tragedy of it all. The tragedy of mass incarceration might actually turn out to be one of the ways we dismantle it because of so many people having this experience at this point and their family members and their loved ones and their friends that I think that is the key to where this movement has started to come from is because too many of us know people are those people and, and really want to see change. So, so I think it can happen. I think the key, though, is kind of harnessing the momentum, keeping it strong, and asking for the right things, not just the kinds of things, not letting politicians off easy, I guess is the way I might put it, because I do have a little bit of a worry that Politicians are on to the idea that a lot of people care about this now, but that they can kind of get away with just saying, oh, yeah, I care about mass incarceration or I'm going to be a progressive prosecutor. You know, I think the next step is really making sure that people walk the walk and don't just talk the talk. You know, show me your policies, (laughs) show me exactly what you're doing and that the activists and the people who care pay attention to those details because I think that's going to be all the day. I'm amazed at how many people want to call themselves a progressive prosecutor now. Like everybody wants to say that, (laughs) you know, and I wouldn't call them all progressive prosecutors. You know, I'd really, you know, I think we need to pay really close attention to those details. Right. Yeah. Ten years ago, that would have been enough to uh, end your career, you know, (laughs) when we started all this tough one crime business. But now it's such a fad. I agree completely with you. I guess I do have one more question. As it uh, pertains to the sex offender registry, you know, politicians for so long have made their bread and butter by scaring the public of, you know, everybody on this registry is a monster. And so it's kind of like a live wire for any politician to touch it. Even if they are sensitive and empathetic to personal stories or the struggles and the basket full of things that probably shouldn't even be considered a sex offense. Right. They, are, they are scared to death to touch it. Do you have any opinions on how to maybe overcome that? You know, that's where I think it's really helpful to have these agencies in place so that a politician can just say, hey, look, we know they could say something along these lines. There are people who should be on a registry because this is how politicians going to want. And there are people that shouldn't be and are distracting from the main mission of what these registries should be about. And it should be up to this agency to figure out how we prioritize our resources. And I think what you would get if in a framework like that, that you know, still allows po- politicians to emphasize that they care about safety, you know, I don't think you're going to dismantle registries. I think politically that's not going to happen. But I do think what is definitely politically feasible is to curtail who is on that tremendously, to 
finding, you know, getting that down to the, the multiple recidivist, you know, kind of true core of who I think they had in mind in the first place, you know, as opposed right. to child pornography and people who visit prostitutes and all the other groups of folks that find themselves in that mix. And, but I think a politician can't do it. You know, we've seen that at the federal level, the federal sentencing commission before I got on had done a big report on the child pornography laws, basically saying, you know, you in your rush Congress to show that you were as tough as possible on this issue, you have lumped together the people who are just viewing this stuff at their computer with people who are actually abusing children and producing it. And they're all getting the same sentence and the same treatment from you, and you need to fix it. And you would think, you know, that in a rational world, of course, that could get fixed. But it hasn't. Um, Congress hasn't touched it because no one wants to be the one in Congress who lowers those penalties for the people who are possessing child pornography. So they don't do anything. Whereas if that decision was with the sentencing commission, you know, if the sentencing the agency had the ability to look at it closely, the commission had the recommendations in there about how you needed to disaggregate this group. That kind of model creates some political insulation for the politicians. And if, you know, in an ideal world, as I see it, the agency should, like other agencies in our system, should have to explain its decision and face judicial review. And so you'd have to show why you rationally did what you did. And I think as soon as you start to inject rationality, you're taking all kinds of people off the registry who clearly should not be there. But, you know, you let an agency do it, and then you have a court say, yes, that's right. Or if the agency doesn't go far enough, the court says, why are you keeping this category of person in there? You haven't explained it. And, you know, the the kind of beauty of that model is if the politician still wants to say, oh, I think they got it wrong, (laughs) or, you know, I might have been much harsher, but my hands are tied – fine, they can say it, but in fact, the decision ends up getting better and get made. And, you know, that model is basically American law everywhere else. That is what we do with a whole host of things that politicians have recognized are just too tough for them to deal with directly. You know, they don't set monetary policy because, you know, they would be doing crazy things to the dollar constantly for political gains. So they, they give it to the Fed. And then when they don't like things the Fed does, they can like yell at them, but they don't touch it. They let them do it. You know, similarly, that's how they handle labor policy, environmental policy. You know, they don't want to pick political winners and losers between industry or environmentalists. And so they set up agencies and, you know, let them take the blame for something that's hard to explain for the public. But at the end of the day, what we get from that kind of model is we get better policy decisions. So I think that's how we'd have to do this. I just I think it's very hard for someone who's directly elected to do it. It's not impossible. And there may be very gifted and talented orators who could explain it to people, you know, and somehow overcome what would inevitably be the attack ad by their opponent. That's the problem is, you know, even if they tried to explain it and did it well, inevitably they're going to have an opponent who is going to twist everything they've said to say candidate X sides with child predators or however they're going to, just like they run those judicial ads. And so I just think you got to take it out of the direct political discourse or real reform won't happen. Rachel, you worked in a prosecutor's office, and I've often heard prosecutors described as the most powerful politician you've never heard of. How do you remove the emotion and pandering from judicial policymaking as long as prosecutors are publicly elected officials? 
So first, I didn't work in a prosecutor's office. I should let you know that. I am on an advisory panel for the Manhattan District Attorney's Office of Outsiders, so along with people like Barry Sheck, (laughs) where we help advise their conviction integrity review process, so making sure they don't have wrongful convictions in the office. But but I've never worked in a prosecutor's office or, for that matter, in a public defender's office. So I'm pretty much been uh, just an outside criminal justice reform scholar and, and advocate for issues. But I do have something to say in response to the question of, you know, what do we do about the fact that these folks are elected and they face the same pressures? Because you're right. It's the same dynamic and it's very hard. We are seeing that there are people getting elected now in the United States. You know, it's a couple dozen at this point who have expressly run on campaigns that are about being smart on crime or progressive. There's different catchphrases for it. But the idea that the old tough on crime sloganeering is ineffective and doesn't work. You know, many of the things we've all talked about tonight. So they are running on this and winning in many places. But, you know, I think there's huge caveats to this progressive prosecutor movement. So first, the places where they've run and won on that kind of an idea, in many of those places, those were communities that were specifically targeted to run those kind of candidates precisely because there was something about that jurisdiction that made it amenable to have that be successful. So a lot of the places had instances of police shoot, deadly police shootings of unarmed civilians that really racked the communities where it happened. Places like Chicago where Laquan McDonald was killed. So we've seen a few cities that have had transfers of power in their prosecutor's office to progressives because people were so upset at how the office handled a police shooting. Uh, and a few other places, there had been allegations of corruption or improper behavior by the prosecutor. So that also paved the way. And then in a few places, it really wasn't any of those things. It was really more of just the community was fed up with poor results, because as we've talked about, these approaches don't work for public safety. And so we are seeing communities recognize now they don't want to hear more of the same because they're not getting good outcomes. So there, there is a space to have elections that could get people into office that aren't just going through that old playbook of, I'm going to be really severe in how I sentence and how I convict people. But, and I think it's a big but on this one, of the more than 2,000 districts out there where people are elected prosecutor, you know, that's going to be a much tougher approach in rural districts, more suburban communities, more traditional communities. You know, there was an effort to elect some progressive prosecutors in various places in California last year that failed. And the the progressive candidates lost to the more traditional tough-on-crime types. So there's going to be a limit to how far you can get with this political movement. You know, I think it's still worth trying. I definitely think it's still worth mobilizing and the people who care about this issue coming out to vote for it and seeing how important it is. But I think it just shows the importance of some of these other strategies as well, that you can't just expect the prosecutors to be the saviors here. I think you need a bench of judges who really enforce constitutional guarantees that are out there to protect us against the government, against prosecutors. You know, one of the things that I find most disturbing about our current doctrine in so many areas is there is a strong constitutional argument for a variety of protections, including against excessive sentences, coercive plea bargaining practices, allowing people to sue prosecutors without giving them broad immunity. You know, all those things. I clerked for Justice Scalia and, you know, feel I have a pretty good understanding of originalist methodologies, very conservative judicial methodologies. All of those arguments 
are super strong, even using that most conservative approach to judging. So if you couple that with you know people who care about individual rights and everything that's at stake, you know some of these really should be slam dunk constitutional arguments. And and I think the reason we've had and and that would give us much better oversight over prosecutors and the politics of all this because the framers saw all this coming. I mean it wasn't as if back in the day they didn't see that people, the public, could be kind of easily prone to severity. So we have a lot of checks in the Constitution against just that. It's just the courts haven't done a very good job enforcing it, which is why I think it's really important to ask ourselves who's on the bench because if it's a bunch of people who grew up with government careers, they're just so much less likely to see anything wrong with the status quo. I mean, that it's just kind of a matter of cognitive psychology that you would have a harder time kind of stepping back and recognizing the ways in which it's too coercive, it's too severe. So I, I do think diversifying the bench, and particularly the federal bench, is a good strategy for holding prosecutors in check because there are things we can do to make prosecutorial power less coercive. You know, we can get rid of, if we can, if there's po- political mobilization is there to get rid of cash bail and excessive pretrial detention. You know, that takes away a lot of leverage for prosecutors who use the fact that people are locked up to get them to plead. You know, and if we got rid of mandatory sentences and had checks on how severe sentences could be, that too takes away just enormous leverage and their ability to extract pleas from people. And you know, now you'd start to have more people going to trial because they wouldn't be facing such a big trial penalty, which is going to use more prosecutor resources, which would mean that prosecutors would really have to think about how to prioritize their docket and their caseload. Because right now, you know, they don't spend much time as much time thinking about that because they can just churn people through by getting them to plea and, co- you know, coercing that. So so I think it's all interconnected that way. And so even if the election strategy ultimately doesn't pan out as well in certain places or because people, there's funding on the other side, I still think there's a way in which they can be reined in, but it will require us to you know, have these agencies in place and also have a judiciary that's really enforcing our constitutional rights. I usually save my most controversial question for last, so here it is. This is probably <laughs> the third rail of criminal justice reform. Do you believe there's a constitutional basis for victims' rights? I mean, I haven't, to be honest with you, I haven't looked into what those arguments are. But, you know, it's hard for me to imagine exactly what – I haven't seen it, so I can't kind of intuitively think about what that is. But the idea that the public prosecutor stands in for all of us and represents the interests of everyone, the victim and society at large – goes very far back. So the notion that there needs to be something additional beyond that is hard for me to see. You know, I'd have to evaluate it and and look at it and to see what the basis is for people claiming that. I mean, my understanding had been that that was more statutory-based arguments. If Congress or state legislature wanted to give victims more rights and more access, then certainly there's legislative power to do that. But the idea that there's some kind of inherent constitutional right to certain kinds of things, that, that's harder for me to see what that would be, you know, other than the rights that we all have for things like public trials and the like, that the, the idea that there's something special, you know, I'd, I'd have to see it. I'm willing to say <laughs> to keep an open mind and read and see it, but I, I guess I have some skepticism about what that would be. Well, I agree with Dwayne and Liz. We could probably listen to you for hours, but we're running out of time. Remind our listeners how they can follow you on social media and where they can get your book. Oh, sure. Uh, so I'm on Twitter 
It's Rachel Barco on Twitter, and you can get the book at Amazon. It's called Prisoners of Politics, Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration. You can either get it from Amazon, you can order it from Harvard University Press or Barnes & Noble, and it's ebook, Kindle, hard copy, and I'm hoping there'll be enough sales that eventually it'll also be in paperback because I know there's lots of prisons and jails that it can only be paperback. So I have to admit that is my one sales goal is to be able to get the the version that would be most accessible to the audience that I would very much like to reach. Super. Well, you've been a great guest, and I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with you, and I hope we can have you back again when your next book comes out. So thank you so much, Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with all of you. I really appreciate it. All right. We've been listening to Rachel Barco, the author of Prisoners of Politics, Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration. My name is Michael McKay. My co-hosts this evening were Dwayne Daughtry and Elizabeth Christensen. And you've been listening to Registry Report Radio. Mm-hmm.